We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Away we go, episode 65 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Tuesday, May 18th, 2021, a day on which we do find the Capitals. Now, even with the Boston Bruins at one in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs, a 4-3 overtime loss to the Bees at Capital One Arena on Monday night. Brad Marchand, game-winning overtime goal, just 39 seconds into the OT. That did not take long. Thank you, defenseman Brendan Dillon. A terrible defensive zone giveaway to set up the game-winning goal, but there was a lot more to the loss than just that. Hello and welcome. Much more on Caps Bruins Game 2 coming up in just a few minutes. Yes, this will be a rare installment of the podcast in which the Washington football team is not the lead. That does not happen often, as you likely know. Uh, that is happening, though, on this show. I'm sorry, the postseason takes precedent, especially when the game just happened. But there is plenty regarding the Washington football team that I will be getting into. Ryan Kerrigan is officially gone, and to the Philadelphia Eagles. The showstopper! Yes, the showstopper, as he has been known. Uh, he won't be stopping any shows for Washington. Uh, he'll now be doing so, or at least trying to do so, for the Eagles. Are you angry at Ryan Kerrigan for leaving for Philadelphia? I am not. 
I think the anger at him actually is ridiculous. I'll get into why, as well as how Kerrigan should be remembered by us Washington fans. Also, as promised, I will be discussing the latest in Dan Snyder versus Bruce Allen. You know, the culture is actually damn good. Yes, Brucey, the culture is so wonderful. Uh, the feud between the Donnie and Brucifer taken to a new level. I'll talk about that with the man who broke the latest in the saga, sports business insider Daniel Kaplan of The Athletic. And we had another loss for the Nationals on Monday night, this time at the Chicago Cubs. I'll talk some Nats. You know, the Nats have about 37 former Cubs on the team and coaching staff. Not unlike Washington has like 37 former Carolina Panthers on the team and coaching staff, but one of the ex-Cubs for the Nats, Kyle Schwarber, did continue to do well on Monday night. Uh, another ex-Cub on the Nats, though, John Lester, got rocked. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Always love hearing from you guys regarding anything and everything that comes up on the podcast. Also, uh, if you have not already, please uh, subscribe to the podcast. Doing so costs you nothing and really helps out. And if you could, give the podcast a five-star rating. And if you have like 30 seconds, just write like a one-sentence review. It does not have to be Shakespearean, what you put forth in your review. Just like a one-sentence thing will do. Again, costs you nothing, but again, does help out the podcast a lot. I'm going to get to the caps in a moment, but I want to talk some wizards with you here while we have a few minutes. Big opportunity for the Wiz on Tuesday night at the Boston Celtics at nine in the seven, eight game in the Eastern Conference play-in tournament. Now remember, the Wizards don't have to win this game to make the NBA playoffs. That's the beauty of the Wiz having clinched the eight seed in the East in the regular season. Wiz get two games to win one game in the play-in tournament. Remember, the Wizards are in the NBA postseason, not the NBA playoffs. Not yet, anyway. Don't say playoffs. Have to say postseason. Uh, but clearly, if you're a Wizards fan like me, and you are rooting for the team to do well, you want to win on Tuesday night and avoid having to get the win over the course of two games. I mean, especially given this Bradley Beal situation. You know, he is not well. Uh, Bradley Beal, of course, returning in the regular season concluding victory over the Charlotte Hornets on Sunday afternoon, 115-110 the final at Capital One Arena. Beal coming back from a three-game absence caused by left hamstring strain. He did not look well for a good chunk of that game, ended up not shooting well. Three of 11 on threes, five of 16 on twos. Now, to his credit, he balled out late in the game, 13 points in the fourth quarter, some big buckets down the stretch. But how about some of what Beal had to say to reporters on Monday, uh, getting into the extent to which he has been ailing. Quote, yesterday, as in Sunday, I kind of made a hard-headed decision and played probably when I shouldn't have, but we made the best of it. The medical staff, they weren't a 100% with it. Some guys were, some weren't, end quote. So you really would like to take care of this on Tuesday night and get Beal the extra rest as the Wizards go into the NBA playoffs, hopefully go into the NBA playoffs. There was some good injury news for the Wizards on Monday. Howell Neto upgraded to probable for this 7-8 game on Tuesday night. So announced the Wizards. So that's good news. Howell has not played each of the last two games due to a left hamstring injury of his own. Now for the Celtics, as you may well know, no Jalen Brown. He's the Celtics' second best player. He is done for the season, underwent season-ending surgery a few days ago. The Wizards, to me, are catching the Celtics at a perfect time. Brown done for the season. The Celtics stumbled down the stretch of the regular season. Boston ended its regular season just 5-10 and over the team's last 15 regular season games. Conversely, the Wizards, right, 17-6 and 
over the Wizards' final 23 games in the regular season. So very much two teams going in opposite directions. The Celtics be sinking, the Wizards be rising. Now what this means for Tuesday night, hard to say. We know what the recent history has been between the Wizards and the Celtics in the postseason. Impossible to forget the Eastern Conference semis in the 2017 NBA playoffs. The Game 7 loss for the Wizards at the Celtics. Kelly Olynyk going nuclear in that fourth quarter. Uh, head coach Brad Stevens on Monday did indicate that the Celtics will be having available to them uh, some guys who've been dealing with injuries lately. Kemba Walker, Marcus Smart, and Tristan Thompson all looking like they'll be playing on Tuesday night despite dealing with injuries recently. And then there is the Russell Westbrook factor. You know, Russell Westbrook's recent postseason history is not very good. This is one of the reasons why people have been so down on Russell Westbrook and have viewed him as a fading player. And he has really combated that narrative with the job he's done in the second half of this NBA season. You know, Westbrook on Monday was named Eastern Conference Player of the Month for May. Russell Westbrook in the month of May in the regular season averaged 26.3 points per game, 16.1 assists per game, 13.8 rebounds per game. He became the first player in NBA history to average at least 26.16 assists and 13 rebounds in a calendar month. Now, I know we didn't end up playing a full month of May in terms of the regular season, but still, 26.3 points per game, 16.1 assists per game, 13.8 rebounds per game. He has, of course, become the NBA's all-time triple-doubles king this season. He has played at a level that we have not seen in years. I mean, if you just look at him through the prism of winning player of the month, this is the first time that Westbrook has won a player of the month award since December 2017. No, he is not a supremely efficient player, even with this recent rise, but he has been more efficient and he has at times carried the Wizards. We have seen this so many times over the course of the Wiz going again 17-6 and over the team's final 23 regular season games. Do we see this from Westbrook on Tuesday night? We know how things go in the NBA postseason. Don't say playoffs. Things slow down, right? And a guy like Westbrook can be exposed. It's one of the reasons that Russell Westbrook has not had a lot of NBA playoff success slash postseason success in recent years. Can Westbrook rise to the occasion on Tuesday night? This to me is a big spot for Russell Westbrook, especially if Beal is at significantly less than 100%. The Wizards need Westbrook to play smart, to play well, but of course to beat Russell Westbrook. You don't want him to calm down to the point to where he doesn't do the great things that we know him to do, but he's got to be in control. He can't be sloppy. This can't be one of these games where Russell Westbrook, yeah, has 14 assists, but he has eight turnovers, okay? I want more along the lines of what we have been seeing from Russell Westbrook. I mean, all you need to do is go back to the Wizards' penultimate game of the regular season, the 120-105 win over the Cleveland Cavaliers at Capital One Arena last Friday night. Westbrook in that game, 17 assists versus one turnover. 17 assists versus one turnover. And I know the Cavaliers aren't very good. The Celtics are a lot better. But still, that's the kind of Russell Westbrook I want to see on Tuesday night at the Celtics. But what a run this has been for the Wizards. Perhaps you came across this on Monday. BasketballReference.com tweeted this out. Just two months ago, the Wizards' odds of reaching the playoffs were 0.4%. Now, the Wizards, as the eight seed, have a 67.9% chance of advancing to the NBA playoffs. It just speaks to the turnaround of this season, the job the Wizards have done in riding their season, the Wizards playing better defensively. They're not a lockdown defensive team, but the Wiz have been better defensively, have been otherworldly at times offensively. I mean, we have seen some incredible offensive displays by the Wizards over these last few weeks. And 
Keep it going, man. The Celtics are ripe for the picking with this game on Tuesday night, and it would be such a good thing for the Wizards to get advancing to the NBA playoffs out of the way in one game so Bradley Beal can heal up. Because here's the thing. If the Wizards are healthy and are right, the Wizards are a threat to knock off the Brooklyn Nets in the first round of the NBA playoffs. Yes, I said it, okay? Not going to be easy. No one's trying to say that. But the idea of the Wizards pulling off the upset of the Nets, remember, if the Wizards win on Tuesday night, the Wiz get the seven seed. So they would face the Wizwood, the two-seeded Nets in the first round of the Eastern Conference playoffs. The Philadelphia 76ers are the one seed. The Brooklyn Nets are the two seed. The Wizards, to me, can beat the Nets in a seven-game series. I would love to see the Wizards get that opportunity, but clearly, you're not going to get that chance if you don't pull off the win at the Seas on Tuesday night. Well, this has become a theme, right? D.C. versus Boston when it comes to the NBA postseason and the Stanley Cup playoffs. And sadly, on Monday night, things did not go so well for D.C. against Boston. So as you may recall, my prediction for Capitals Bruins in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs was caps in seven. But with the series being very similar to what we had in the 2012 Stanley Cup playoffs when the Capitals in the first round beat the Bruins in seven games, but with every game in the series being a one-goal game. That series was about as close of a playoff series as you'll ever see. And yes, I said close. It means you're close. Yes, thank you, Brucey. Four of the seven games in that series between the Caps and the Bruins in the first round of the 2012 Stanley Cup playoffs were overtime games. Well, here we are, two games in the Caps-Bruins in the first round of the 2021 Stanley Cup playoffs, and so far, we're getting what we got in 2012. Saturday night, Caps won game one, 3-2 in overtime over the Bruins at Capital One Arena. Monday night, Capitals lost 4-3 in overtime to the Bruins at Capital One Arena in game number two. The series now even at one, and you could very much argue the Capitals are lucky to have the series even at one, given what the Caps are facing. I mean, this really is something else. All of the injuries slash absences that the Caps are having to contend with. And I know every team in the Stanley Cup playoffs has to deal with stuff like this, but when's the last time you can recall a team, especially a Capitals team, having to put up with this kind of a thing. The Capitals on Monday night remained without Evgeny Kuznetsov and goaltender Ilya Samsonov, were without goaltender Vitek Vanacek, and lost Lars Eller. So we'll start with Kuznetsov and Samsonov. It's like every day now, we got to get updates on where these guys stand with their COVID-19 situations. So the Caps were without Kuznetsov and Samsonov on Monday night for a seventh consecutive game, each guy not playing in the first game of that stretch due to team disciplinary reasons, as the players, remember, were late to a team function. Each guy since then has been out due to COVID-19 protocols. Now, Kuznetsov did come off the NHL's COVID-19 list on Sunday, just as Samsonov came off the league's COVID-19 list on Saturday. So that clearly is progression. But head coach Peter Laviolette, who has basically Belichicked it when it's come to what's going on with Kuznetsov and Samsonov, on Monday said that the Caps still were working through some things with Kuznetsov and Samsonov. So the guys have come off the COVID-19 list, but apparently aren't good to play yet whatever that means. I don't know if there's more testing that needs to be done. I don't know if the Capitals are perhaps punishing both guys, although I don't know why you would do that. I mean, it is the playoffs here. I would get those guys on the ice and worry about punishing them later. But whatever the case may be, neither Kuznetsov nor Samsonov was available to the Capitals on Monday night. Then you have the Vanacek scenario. Vitek Vanacek, of course, started game one, but didn't even last the whole first period. Suffered a lower body injury, left the game, 
hasn't played since. He was not available to the Capitals on Monday night. And then also on Monday night, the Capitals lost Lars Eller. He left game two in the second period with a lower body injury and did not return. Remember, the Capitals already have been playing TJ Oshie at center for a good chunk of this season, including as the third line center for each of the first two games in this series. You're down now two centers, two of your top three centers, right? You have Nicholas Backstrom, but no Evgeny Kuznetsov, and now no Lars Eller. At least you didn't have him as the game went on on Monday night. We'll see what his status is for Wednesday night's game three at Boston. But it's just been a brutal run here for the Capitals when it comes to injuries and absences. Of course, it was late in the regular season. Caps played a bunch of games without Alex Ovechkin. Nicholas Backstrom missed some time. Defenseman John Carlson missed some time. TJ Oshie missed time as well. Well, with all of that as a backdrop, the Capitals got demolished in the puck possession battle on Monday night. The Caps per natural stat trick in game two had 49 five-on-five shot attempts to the Bruins 70. Yes, the Capitals were minus 21 in the five-on-five shot attempt department per natural stat trick on Monday night, including, get this, the Caps having just seven high-danger five-on-five shot attempts to the Bruins 17. The Caps got more than doubled up in the high-danger five-on-five shot attempt battle by the Bruins on Monday night. Discrepancy really came down to what went down in the third period. First two periods, Caps were out puck-possessed, but not by that much. Then came the third period, during which the Caps, per natural stat trick, had 14 five-on-five shot attempts to the Bruins' 30. I mean, just an awful discrepancy there. Caps more than doubled up by the Bruins in five-on-five shot attempts in the third period of a playoff game. And with the Capitals missing all of these key players, with who the Capitals had in net, more on that momentarily, to get out puck-possessed to the extent to which the Caps did on Monday night, very disappointing. You know, the Caps in their Game 1 win actually did a pretty good job in terms of puck possession. The Caps in Game 1 uh, won the puck possession battle per natural stat trick. 55 5-on-5 shot attempts to the Bruins 52. But the thing with the Bruins is they were an elite puck possession team during the regular season. Boston finished the regular season third in the NHL in 5-on-5 shot attempt percentage at 54.2. And remember the idea with 5-on-5 shot attempt percentage. You're stripping out special teams because that'll distort things, right? So no power play, no penalty kill. Just 5-on-5, which team is generating the most shot attempts? Remember, shot attempts are not just shots on goal. They are also shots that miss the net. They are also shots that get blocked by the opposing team. It's a really good indicator of who's playing better, who is winning the 5-on-5 shot attempt battle. The Capitals, again, lost the 5-on-5 shot attempt battle on Monday night per natural stat trick, 70-49. That's a blowout, and the third period had a lot to do with that. In terms of just shots on goal for the game, uh, Caps had 39 shots on goal to the Bruins' 48. But like, take, for example, the Bruins' top line, the perfection line, David Pasternak, Patrice Bergeron, and Brad Marchand. That line over 10 minutes, 15 seconds on the ice together in five-on-five play on Monday night, a shot attempt percentage collectively per natural stat trick of 68.75. I mean, that's terrific. 22 shot attempts for 10 shot attempts against, as they say, in hockey. That's terrific for the Bruins. That's awful for the Capitals. And whereas Pasternak, Bergeron, and Marchand were largely kept in check in terms of scoring in game one, Bergeron and Marchand each had a goal on Monday night, including Marchand providing the game winner. Ah, speaking of that and goal scoring against the Caps on Monday night, Craig Anderson was in fact the Caps' primary goaltender for a second consecutive game. And look, here's the deal with Craig Anderson. I mean, the guy can only do so much, okay? Craig Anderson is in his age 39 season. He's going to turn 40 
on Friday. He, during the regular season, made two starts, and now he's been thrust into a situation here playing one of the best teams in the NHL in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. No Samsonov, no Vanacek. Caps had Phoenix Copley, by the way, as their number two goaltender. I mean, think about this. The Capitals' goaltenders for Monday night's Game 2 were Craig Anderson and Phoenix Copley. That's not the way this is supposed to be. Go back to months ago before the season even started. Remember, it was supposed to be Henrik Lundqvist as one of the Capitals' goaltenders for the season. So you went from having King Henry, Ilya Samsonov, and Vitek Vanacek to now in Game 2 on Monday night going with Craig Anderson and Phoenix Copley. That's quite a fall, okay? All due respect to Anderson and Copley, that's quite a fall from the way things were supposed to be for the Capitals with their goaltending going into the 2020-2021 season. And so what happened with Craig Anderson on Monday night? He got bombarded. Craig Anderson faced 48 shots on goal with the Capitals getting smacked around in the puck possession battle. Anderson had to try to stop 48 shots on goal and he stopped 44 of them. So I mean, is that a great percentage? No. But what do you want from the guy? He's going to turn 40 on Friday. I mean, he's not supposed to be in this spot. And yet he is. And how about this too? Per natural stat trick, 14 high danger shots on goal Craig Anderson had to face on Monday night. 14. That is way too many. That is a bad job by the Caps in terms of allowing way too much traffic, way too many high danger shots on goal. 14 is an unacceptable total. And to Anderson's credit, he stopped 12 of them, but you're not going to stop all of them, especially a guy in his predicament. Anderson, per natural stat trick, stopped 12 of the 14 high danger shots on goal that he faced, stopped eight of the nine medium danger shots on goal that he faced, stopped 22 of the 23 low danger shots on goal that he faced. And look, he was not perfect. You know, Anderson on Jake DeBrusque's even strength goal, 505 into the first period, made a major mistake in coming completely out of the crease to deal with Charlie Coyle as he was driving toward the net. Coyle skated the puck behind the net and then found DeBrusque in front of a wide open net. That was a gamble by Anderson that worked out in a terrible way. Uh, Anderson on Patrice Bergeron's even strength goal, 921 into the first period for a 2-1 Bruins lead, got beat high and glove side on a slot shot on which Anderson wasn't screened. You know, you hated to see Anderson give that up. It's not like he had a bunch of bodies uh, in his path. Like, Anderson should have stopped that. Did not. Uh, Anderson gave up a game-tying even strength goal to Taylor Hall, 17-11 into the third period in an insane scene in which we had a pile of bodies in the Caps crease, including Anderson sprawled out on his stomach, and you had the Bruins just hacking and whacking the puck into the net. I'm not sure what you're supposed to do as a goaltender in that spot, but I mean, that, that was the embodiment of too much traffic. Uh, that, that, that was the, you know, epitome of having too many Bruins near the net, too much in the way of the high danger shot attempt with all of those Bruins piled up there. Uh, it looked like a car wreck. All those bodies in the crease and the Bruins ended up, like I said, hacking and whacking the puck into the net to tie the game at three. And then on the game winner, Anderson beat on a one-timer from Brad Marchand from the right circle on the game-winning even strength goal, just 39 seconds into overtime. But the thing with that was the sequence started thanks to a brutal giveaway by defenseman Brendan Dillon, whose attempt to send the puck down the right boards was intercepted by David Krejci near the right point. So, you know, Anderson, I just look at it and I'm like, well, what do you want from the guy? He's, he's doing what he can, but he's not someone who should be in this spot to begin with. The Capitals have got to figure something out here with the goaltending. Now, I know they're trying. I know the Caps aren't doing this on purpose, but hopefully Vanacek can be healthy for game three or Samsonov can finally get his act together to where he's available for game three. But the Craig Anderson thing was cute 
in game one. It's not so cute in game two. And the Caps, whoever's in net, 48 shots on goal. You can't have that. You've got to do a better job when it comes to that. Now, when it came to the Capitals' three goals on Monday night, Garnett Hathaway, of all people, had two goals, also had five hits. Defenseman Dmitry Orlov had two primary assists. It was interesting what went down with these goals. So the Caps' first goal, TJ Oshie had a power play goal, 631 into the first period to tie the game at one. Defenseman John Carlson making a less than perfect pass from the point to Alex Ovechkin in the left circle. Ovi, though, did a really nice job here, gathered the puck, sent it toward Oshie, who had presented his stick in the low slot, basically just putting your stick down on the ice, saying, I'm here, come find me. Uh, Ovi did, and the puck went off Oshie's stick and above and past the Bruins goaltender to Garask. So good job by Ovechkin of handling the Carlson pass, recognizing that Oshie was there, and then getting the puck to Oshie, and then the puck did its thing, where it ricocheted off Oshie's stick and then into the net, caps even the game at one. Garnett Hathaway's first goal was an even strength goal, 16-42 into the first period to tie the game at two. And this goal really was all about Lars Eller. And it's a shame that Eller ended up leaving the game with a lower body injury because on this goal by Hathaway, Eller began the sequence with an offensive zone faceoff win. Caps were bad on faceoffs again on Monday night, 24-41 and in game two. Oshie, by the way, I'm going to mention him playing center. He's not a center. He's been asked to play center way too much this season. 1-10 and on faceoffs on Monday night. How about that? 1-10 and was TJ Oshie on faceoffs in that game on Monday night. Caps in the game one win went just 26 and 39 on faceoffs. And Oshie in that game, one and seven on faceoffs. So TJ Oshie over the first two games of this series is two and 17 on faceoffs. A lot of people in hockey analytics will tell you faceoff stuff doesn't matter that much. Still, you'd like to have a guy who's better than two and 17 on faceoffs over the first two games of a playoff series. Anyway, Eller wins this offensive zone faceoff then ends up providing a great screen on the Bruins goaltender to Garaz to allow for the puck to find its way into the net. So awesome job by Eller. In terms of how the actual shot was made, uh, the goal came by defenseman Dmitry Orlov just sending the puck toward the net from above the left circle and the puck ricocheting off the right skate of Hathaway in the left circle as Hathaway had his back to the net. So yeah, Hathaway gets credit for the goal, but like this is hockey. The puck went off the guy's skate with his back to the goal into the net, and then the guy gets credit for the goal. Like, it just, you know, hockey can be so flukish, and like, that's a classic case of that. And then Hathaway's second goal, even strength goal, 7-0-4 into the third period for a 3-2 Caps lead. Two-on-one breakaway, Orloff passing the puck to Hathaway as he skated into the right circle, and Hathaway depositing a wrister past the Bruins goaltender to Garask high and glove side. So some good stuff there from the Capitals, some puck luck as well, but again, you don't have to apologize for that stuff. But even with that, the Capitals out puck possessed. And, you know, like I keep saying, Craig Anderson, he can only do so much. Like, what do you, that would have been a tough spot for, you know, Pete Braden Holtby to handle 48 shots on goal on Monday night. Here were the Caps asking Craig Anderson to handle that kind of load. Uh, interesting game too, from a standpoint of penalties, 14 total minors in the game. You don't normally see a lot of penalties called in Stanley Cup playoff games. You obviously saw a lot of penalties called on Monday night. Caps committed six minors. The Bruins committed eight minors. Caps went one for four on the power play, two at two on the penalty kills. So the Caps did win the special teams battle. Alex Ovechkin, I thought, did have a second straight good game to begin this series. Ovi had a primary assist. Like I said, did a really good job on the Yoshi goal. Uh, Ovi also having a team high tying eight total shots. Andy had three hits. Andy finished number five on the Caps and five-on-five shot attempt percentage per natural stat trick. So I've liked pretty much what we've seen from Ovechkin so far. 
But the Caps, A, have got to get healthier, and B, have got to do a better job of controlling the puck. And it's not easy. understand that. The Bruins are a really talented team. But losing the puck possession battle the way the Caps did, especially in that third period, 35-on-5 shot attempts for the Bruins to the Capitals' 14 per natural stat trick. Not going to get the job done. Game three, Capitals at the Bruins, Wednesday night at 6.30. The Washington football team on Monday officially announcing the signing of free safety Bobby McCain. So Charles Leno Jr., the left tackle, that signing made official this past Saturday. The McCain acquisition made official on Monday. But in terms of the biggest news item regarding the Washington football team on Monday, it was the Ryan Kerrigan news. Quite the roller coaster over the last 24 hours regarding one of the best players in the history of the Washington football team, Ryan Kerrigan. Kerrigan, in an Instagram post on Sunday night, said goodbye to Washington. Read the post, quote, I'll never be able to sum up what these past 10 years have meant to me in an Instagram post. But what I can say is that they have been some of the best in my life. I hope you had as much fun watching me as I did playing for you. Thank you, Washington, for everything. HBK. End quote. And HBK is an ode to the pro wrestler, the heartbreak kid, Shawn Michaels, who Ryan Kerrigan clearly was a big fan of. That's who Kerrigan mimicked his sack celebration after. So this obviously was a goodbye, right? Didn't seem necessarily like a retirement announcement from Kerrigan, but we didn't know if this was a goodbye because something new was about to start for Kerrigan or just a goodbye because he had come to the realization that he wouldn't be re-signing with Washington. Remember, it had been out there for a little while of, hey, maybe Kerrigan is going to re-sign with Washington because he's still out there as a free agent and nobody's picked him up just yet. Well, then came another Instagram post from Kerrigan on Monday morning announcing that he was signing with the Philadelphia Eagles and they, minutes later, announced him having agreed on a one-year deal. Yes, Washington's all-time sack king, arguably the single best player for Washington in the Dan Snyder era, and no, that's not saying a ton, has jumped ship to the Eagles. I can't say that I'm happy that Kerrigan will be playing for the Eagles, but the vitriol toward Kerrigan that was out there on Monday, the anger toward Kerrigan that was on display on Monday, especially on social media, really was ridiculous. I mean, you got to understand something here. Washington didn't want Kerrigan, point blank period. So what do you want Kerrigan to have done? Say, well, my last team doesn't want me, but I can't go to this other team because that other team is an enemy of my last team, which doesn't want me, you know? Like, no, he's going to go where he feels like he'll have the best opportunity and, you know, make good money. Um, I don't know what other offers Kerrigan had. I think pretty clearly he didn't have a ton, but I have no anger toward Kerrigan for going to the Eagles. Like I said, I'm not doing a parade over this. Like, I, if I could script it, would I say, you know, Kerrigan goes to the Denver Broncos or to the Las Vegas Raiders. Yeah, I would prefer that. Get him out of the conference. Uh, you know, the notion of him haunting Washington twice in the 2021 season isn't a great thought. Although, you know, we'll see if he does that. We'll see what he's got left in the tank here. But I'm not mad at the guy for doing this. Again, Washington didn't want him. Ron Rivera chose not to even pursue Kerrigan this offseason. We now know that. Kerrigan, it turns out, was told by Washington at the start of free agency this offseason that the team wasn't going to try to resign him. Kerrigan said this on Monday to Washington football team insider John Keim of ESPN, adding, quote, I just know they were forthright and clear from the start of free agency about the direction they were moving in. I appreciated their directness, end quote. 
So, I mean, could you say, well, Kerrigan's lying? I mean, I guess you could, but he does not have any kind of a reputation for doing something like that. I don't know why he would come out and say something like this if it's not true. You know, I had kind of wondered, well, does Kerrigan even want to come back because of the lack of playing time, lack of opportunity? So I don't know if this is a situation where Washington said, all right, you want more than what we're willing to give. Ergo, we're not going to even try to resign you. Or if this was, you know, maybe we can work something out, maybe not, but we're just not interested in resigning you. So it's hard to say, you know, it may be an issue of semantics with this, but at least per Kerrigan, he was told by Washington at the start of free agency, yeah, we're kind of done with you, pal. So best of luck to you, but we're moving on. And you know what? Kerrigan maybe didn't even need to be told this by Washington because the team's actions in the 2020 season said a lot. Ryan Kerrigan had a very humbling 2020 season. Kerrigan in the 2020 regular season played in all 16 of Washington's games, but made just one start and played on just 37.99% of Washington's defensive snaps. That's it. 38% of Washington's defensive snaps. Troy Apke played on more defensive snaps for Washington in a 2020 regular season than Kerrigan did. Now, Kerrigan in his limited opportunity was actually fairly productive. He totaled five and a half sacks. He, per sport radar, generated 13 pressures. But the fact that Kerrigan was on the field as little as he ended up being on the field, that said a lot about what Washington thinks of him at this point. Now, do I think that Ron Rivera and Jack Del Rio can't stand Kerrigan? No. Do I think that Ron and Jack think that Kerrigan has nothing left, like zero left? No, not necessarily. I mean, he did play 38% of the snaps. But especially with Chase Young and Montez Sweat here, Washington was not in a rush to get Ryan Kerrigan out there. And we certainly saw that last season. So, I mean, how can you be that angry at Kerrigan for doing this? Washington didn't want him. Washington's actions last season screamed this. And if in fact it's true, and there's no reason to think that it isn't true, that he was told at the start of free agency, we're not going to be resigning you. What exactly did you want him to do? Okay, he's going to go where the best opportunity and best contract exist. And unfortunately, that spot ended up being Philadelphia. Now, Kerrigan this offseason ended up having a very slow moving and I think very humbling free agent market. You know, he's not that old. Uh, this coming season going to be Kerrigan's age 33 season. I know in the NFL, that's certainly not young, but especially for a guy like Kerrigan, who has largely been durable, who takes incredible care of himself. 33 is not that bad either. I mean, the, the idea that Kerrigan may still have a couple of good seasons left isn't, you know, that ridiculous. But in terms of the market for Kerrigan this offseason, you just had not heard much at all, okay? And that doesn't mean that uh, zero teams were interested. Like, we don't always hear about every team that's interested in a player. But if you follow this stuff, as I know many of you do, you just weren't seeing the name Ryan Kerrigan pop up much. You, you certainly weren't hearing the name Ryan Kerrigan come up all that much. The only real thing that had been out there was what NFL insider Ian Rappaport of NFL Network and NFL.com put out on March 24th when Rappaport reported that Kerrigan was to take a free agent visit with the Cincinnati Bengals on that day. Rappaport also said that Washington had, quote, interest in having Kerrigan return, end quote. Hmm. So what are we to think of that now? Was that true? Or did Washington put that out there as being true to maybe help Ryan Kerrigan out? But in reality, Washington had no interest and re-signing Kerrigan. You know, because that is possible too, that Ron Rivera said, look, we're not interested in re-signing you, but we'll do what we can to help you. So if you have other offers, we'll make it seem like we are interested. We'll leak that we are interested to try to get you the best deal possible. That is a possibility as well. I mean, Kerrigan in his comments to Kime on Monday certainly did not come off as bitter, and he shouldn't be bitter. He had a very good run with Washington. 
And like I said, I'm not angry at him. You know, this is far from the first time something like this has happened to an all-time Washington great going to another team, even a team within the division, okay? Ryan Kerrigan, in fact, joins a number of other all-time Washington greats who ended up going elsewhere. It would be nice if every Washington all-time great was, you know, Daryl Green, Joe Jacoby, Russ Grimm, Jeff Bostic, and never played for another team. But that just isn't the case, especially in today's NFL with the salary cap with unrestricted free agency. I mean, the list really is lengthy in terms of all-time Washington greats who ended up playing elsewhere. Art Monk played for the New York Jets in 1994 and then for the Philadelphia Eagles in 1995. Gary Clark played for the Phoenix slash Arizona Cardinals in 1993 and 1994 and then for the Miami Dolphins in 1995. Brian Mitchell played for the Philadelphia Eagles from 2000 through 2002 and then for the New York Giants in 2003. Dexter Manley played for the Phoenix Cardinals in 1990, and then for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in 1991. Charles Mann played for the San Francisco 49ers in 1994. Mark May played for the San Diego Chargers in 1990, and for the Phoenix Cardinals in 1992 and 1993. More recently, right, Jordan Reed this past season played for the San Francisco 49ers. Trent Williams this past season played for the San Francisco 49ers. This happens, okay? It doesn't always feel great, but circumstances come up and guys want to continue their careers and Washington doesn't want those guys to continue their careers with Washington. And so those guys go elsewhere. Like it's not that big of a deal. Like I said, it's not something you want. Like I don't think anyone's doing cartwheels over Kerrigan going to the Eagles, but this is the way it works in the NFL. I just did this angle that was out there for some people. I'm like, do you not follow sports? Like, are you, are you just new to sports? Did you just start watching sports in 2021 off not having watched anything or followed anything over the last 30 years? Like, this is the way sports work now. Very few people end up playing their entire careers with one team. It's just not the way that things go anymore. And specific to this instance, if the team told Kerrigan, we're not going to try to resign you, what exactly did you want the guy to do? Here to me is really the big item, okay? And it, it is an appreciation for Ryan Kerrigan. Ryan Kerrigan, in a time in which Washington had way too many players who were malcontents, who were off injured, and or who were just not that good, never complained, was incredibly durable, and was highly productive. Ryan Kerrigan, in so many ways, was the antithesis of all that was wrong with Washington during his time with the team. Ryan Kerrigan was a part of Washington during an incredibly tumultuous time. I mean, you think about Ryan Kerrigan's decade with the team, and that's what it ended up being, exactly a decade, 2011 through 2020. Washington, over those 10 seasons, had seven losing seasons, including four double-digit loss seasons, and countless controversies, problems, and sagas. I mean, think about all that Ryan Kerrigan was here for during his decade with Washington. RG3 versus the Shanahans. The Kirk Cousins. Cha-cha-cha. Yes, exactly. The firings, oh, the firings of Mike Shanahan, Scott McLuhan, Jay Gruden, Bruce Allen, the Trent Williams holdout. You know, you think about some of the problems with Washington teams that Kerrigan was a part of. Secondaries that had all kinds of communication and cohesion issues. A lack of talent in terms of the defensive front, you know, interior defensive linemen who weren't very good up until recently. 
Uh, think about the linebacking cores that were behind Kerrigan for all these years, right? I mean, again, hopefully things are changing now with the likes of Cole Holcomb and, you know, Jamin Davis. But for years, right, you had slow linebackers, plotting linebackers, ineffective linebackers who Kerrigan was on the field with, like lack of defensive talent that Kerrigan was on the field with. And yet, and yet, Ryan Kerrigan never publicly complained, never made waves, never did anything other than work hard. Like, think about this. Could you imagine Ryan Kerrigan pulling a stunt like Trent Williams pulled with his holdout in 2019? You know, like, if you look at the two best Washington players of the decade of the 2010s, right? You're looking at Trent Williams and Ryan Kerrigan. And how about the contrast between those two over the last few years? Like, I think most people as of two or three years ago would have said, yeah, when it comes to Trent versus Ryan, Trent's the better player. Trent's better at his position than Ryan has been at his position. I don't know how anyone anymore can look at Trent Williams and say, well, he was the best Washington player of the 2010s. Ryan Kerrigan, to me, holds that championship belt in part because of the way Trent's tenure with the team ended up ending. Never in a million years would Ryan Kerrigan have pulled a stunt like what Trent pulled with that holdout in 2019. Can you even imagine Ryan Kerrigan whining about being underpaid or whining about wanting more guaranteed money? Never, never. Like, of of all the impacts of the Trent thing in 2019 and 2020, I thought for me, one of them really was an appreciation of Ryan Kerrigan, seeing how Kerrigan could have made some of the same arguments that Trent made, but never did. Ryan Kerrigan kept his head down and all he did was show up, work hard, and produce. Kerrigan over 10 seasons with Washington played in 156 of a possible 160 regular season games. Think about that. 156 of a possible 160 regular season games. All of the big money Washington players over Ryan's time with Washington, who missed time due to injury. Kerrigan missed four games over 10 seasons. He had a streak of 139 consecutive regular season games and 139 consecutive regular season starts to begin his career until he finally missed time in the 2019 season. And what was so odd about that, if you recall, is that Ryan Kerrigan suffered a concussion in that 1916 win over the Detroit Lions at FedEx Field in week 12 of the 2019 season. Finally ends up missing a game because of that concussion. Came back, and then what happened? He suffered a calf injury in a 2015 loss at the Green Bay Packers in week 14 of the 2019 season and ended up being placed on the reserve slash injured list. So he had never missed time before because of an injury. Misses a game, comes back, gets hurt again, and then ends up missing the season. But Kerrigan ended up playing in all 16 games this past regular season. And Kerrigan was a very good player for Washington. Now, was he a havoc-wreaking edge rusher who caused opposing offensive coordinators to lose sleep? No, I would not say that. Was Kerrigan guilty at times of being too disciplined and not being enough of a football player, not being enough of a playmaker? Yeah, I think that's a valid criticism. You know, he certainly could disappear for stretches, and he did have problems against the run. But even with all of that having been the case, Kerrigan for Washington produced a lot. I've noticed sort of this pushback on Ryan in recent years where people point out all of the things that he isn't. And this is always a very dangerous thing in sports. Like, yes, he's not perfect. Okay, fine. But don't get so fixated on what the guy isn't. How about looking at what the guy is? How about appreciating what the guy is? Like, is he Lawrence Taylor as an edge rusher? No. Okay, fine. 
But is he on that next tier? Yeah. Ryan Kerrigan, over his 10 seasons with Washington, had a franchise record 95.5 career regular season sacks. Kerrigan, over his 10 seasons with Washington, had four regular seasons, each with at least 11 sacks. Kerrigan, over his 10 seasons with Washington, set new career franchise records for regular season forced fumbles at 26, regular season quarterback hits at 147, regular season tackles for loss at 119. Now, I will totally concede those stats I just went through, they've only been tracked for so long. Forced fumbles and tackles for loss only go back to 1999. Quarterback hits only go back to 2006. So yeah, I'll let you have to mention that. But still, those are some really good numbers that Ryan Kerrigan accumulated. So was he an A-plus edge rusher along the lines of, again, you know, Lawrence Taylor, Derek Thomas? No. But was Kerrigan on that next tier of really good edge rushers? Like, if Kerrigan wasn't an A-plus, can we go ahead and say that he was a B-plus? You know, A-minus, that sort of a thing? Yeah. And that's great. That's an excellent career. You know, in, in some circumstances, that's a pro football Hall of Fame career. Now, I don't think Kerrigan's going to make the Hall of Fame, and I don't think necessarily that he should make the Hall of Fame, but he certainly should make the Washington Ring of Fame, and he certainly should be appreciated for what he provided. Don't get so sucked into, well, he didn't do this and he wasn't that. Okay, fine. You're not wrong to say those things, but don't lose sight of like what he was. What he was was a consistent, reliable, dependable pass rusher for Washington for a decade. Now, all of that said, Ryan Kerrigan may be Washington's all-time sack king, but he is not the best pass rusher in Washington history. And I think most people listening are in agreement on this. While Kerrigan last season did become Washington's all-time leader in regular season sacks, right? 95.5 sacks he ends up having. The man who he surpassed, Dexter Manley, is the true Washington all-time sack king. So Dexter had 91 sacks, but take a listen to the disparity in games played. Kerrigan's 95.5 sacks came over 156 regular season games for Washington. Dexter's 91 sacks came over just 125 regular season games for Washington. So Dexter had just four and a half fewer sacks than Ryan, despite Dexter playing in 31 fewer regular season games than Ryan did. Now, of course, you can say, well, Dexter had a substance abuse problem. Ryan was the exact opposite of someone who could not be counted on. So that should be a check in Ryan's favor. And you're right, it should be. But Dexter, in terms of per game sack production, blows away Kerrigan. And understand this, sacks did not become an official statistic until 1982. Dexter played for Washington from 1981 through 89. So Dexter's sack count didn't begin until his second season with Washington, 1982. The 91 career regular season sacks for Dexter Manley, that's the official count. We don't know what it actually should be because, again, sacks weren't officially counted until the 1982 season. So if you look at per-game sack production, you really have to take out Dexter's 1981 season. If you do that, Dexter accumulated his 91 sacks over 109 regular season games with Washington. Kerrigan, again, 95.5 sacks over 156 regular season games with Washington. In terms of sacks per game, Dexter with the 91 sacks over 109 regular season games, averaged 0.835 sacks per game with Washington in the regular season. Kerrigan averaged 0.612 sacks per game with Washington in the regular season. Dexter Manley averaged 
36.44% more sacks per game than Kerrigan did. So the idea that Ryan Kerrigan is the best pass rusher in Washington history isn't true, isn't correct. Again, I think most people get that. But I wanted to point this out because it really is drastic, the extent to which Dexter on a per-game basis generated sacks more than Kerrigan did. Now, when you're evaluating an edge rusher, a pass rusher, it's not just about sacks. We know that now. It's also about pressures. It's about disrupting the game in other ways. Unfortunately, we don't have the advanced data for Dexter Manley's career like we do with Ryan Kerrigan and guys who play today. So there's only so much comparative analysis that we can do when it comes to Kerrigan versus Manley. But you can certainly look at sacks, and especially when you account for sacks having not become an official stat until 1982, Dexter Manley is truly Washington's all-time sack king. I will say this, Ryan Kerrigan did produce sacks at a clip better than that of Charles Mann. Uh, Charles had 95 sacks over 163 career regular season games for Washington from 1983 through 93. So that works out to 0.583 sacks per game. Kerrigan, again, 0.612 sacks per game. Another thing with Kerrigan is this. Remember how Washington got Ryan Kerrigan. Washington took Kerrigan with the number 16 overall pick in the 2011 NFL draft. But Washington did this off having traded down with the Jacksonville Jaguars. Do you remember this trade? Washington dealt its first round pick in the 2011 draft, number 10 overall to the Jacksonville Jaguars, who gave back their 2011 first round pick, number 16 overall, and a 2011 second round pick, number 49 overall. The Jags used Washington's initial first round pick on, yes, quarterback Blaine Gabbert. How'd that work out, Jacksonville? Uh, Washington took Kerrigan at number 16, wheeled and dealed with that number 49 pick. But what is notable with all this is that the Houston Texans took J.J. Watt with the number 11 pick. So no doubt, if you could go back and re-engineer this, you would just have Washington stand pad at number 10 and take J.J. Watt as the edge rusher for the next decade. Kerrigan was far more durable than Watt. Kerrigan from 2011 through 2020 played in 156 regular season games to Watt's 128. Again, that availability for Kerrigan cannot be overstated. 28 more regular season games for Kerrigan than for Watt over the last 10 seasons. You know what? Almost two full regular seasons more of Ryan Kerrigan than J.J. Watt over the last decade. But Watt over that span has dominated Kerrigan in terms of pass rushing production. Even with J.J. Watt having played in 28 fewer regular season games than Kerrigan has played in, Watt has more sacks, 101 to Kerrigan's 95.5, substantially more quarterback hits, 282 to Kerrigan's 147, substantially more tackles for loss, 172 to Kerrigan's 119. So again, Ryan Kerrigan was not an A-plus edge rusher for Washington, but he's on that next tier. You know, again, B-plus, A-minus, that kind of a thing. He is to be appreciated, and I am not angry at him for going to the Philadelphia Eagles. Ron Rivera has clearly decided Washington doesn't need Ryan Kerrigan. We'll see if Ron is proven correct on that. I do worry a bit about Washington's edge rushing depth, right? Because beyond Chase Young and Montez Sweat, you don't have anything proven in terms of edge rushers. I know you have other interior defensive linemen who maybe couldn't be deployed as edge rushers. But yeah, there's a reason that you look at the two edge rushers who Washington took in the seventh round of the 2021 draft, William Bradley King and Shaka Tony. And I know I feel those guys could actually not only end up making the team, but end up contributing this coming season. Because again, you just don't have much depth at edge rusher beyond Chase Young and Montez Sweat. I think there would have been a role for Kerrigan with Washington in 2021. Had Washington wanted Kerrigan to have that role, 
and had Kerrigan wanted it to have that role, but at least one of those two things wasn't the case. I do think Kerrigan wanted to go to a place where he would play more, and if what he told John Kime is true, and like I said, there's no reason to think that it isn't, Washington never had interest in re-signing Ryan Kerrigan to begin with. But that doesn't take away from Ryan Kerrigan having been an all-time Washington great, and so Put aside the vitriol. Calm down with the anger about Kerrigan going to the Eagles. This kind of thing has happened many times over the years. And let us appreciate what Ryan Kerrigan was for the Washington football team over his decade with the franchise. A shining light in an overall period of darkness. We salute you, Ryan Kerrigan, for a job well done. Well, Kerrigan is an all-time Washington great, just like Dr. Matthew Mintz, a big supporter of the Al Galdi podcast. Dr. Matthew Mintz's practice really is the opposite of so much of what's wrong with healthcare right now. As you likely know, our healthcare system uh, is, shall we say, far from perfect. You want to see a doctor, you have to book an appointment three months out. Then when your appointment finally arrives, you have to wait in the waiting room for like an hour. Then the actual appointment ends up being short and not to your satisfaction. And if you have a question days later, forget about getting a call back from your doctor in a timely fashion. Well, Dr. Matthew Mintz is pushing back on all of this. He is an internal medicine and primary care physician whose concierge membership practice allows for old-fashioned personalized care in which every patient is a person, not a number. Dr. Mintz offers next day, even same day appointments, longer appointment times, 24-7 after hours access, and how about this lab work that's done in the office. You don't have to go schlepping all over town to get your blood drawn. Also, unlike most other concierge practices, Dr. Matthew Mintz can generate invoices for patients that can be submitted for reimbursement from most insurances. His office is located in Bethesda in the Wildwood Medical Center across the street from Balducci's. He's a big Washington football team fan. He's a loyal listener of this podcast. Ask him about his thoughts on Kerrigan when you speak to him. And some of you listening may have been with Potomac Physicians and now aren't sure what to do with them closing and reopening as two distinct non-insurance-only practices. Why not give Dr. Matthew Mintz a call? In fact, he offers a free meet and greet in person or virtual so you can see if his practice is right for you. Set up your free meet and greet by going to drmintz.com. That's drmintz.com, D-R-M-I-N-T-Z.com. Or call his office. Tell his office that you want what you heard about on the Al Galdi podcast. The free meet and greet. The phone number is 855-646-8963. That's 855-646-8963. Dr. Matthew Mintz, an internal medicine and primary care physician who provides medical care the way you like it, the way it used to be, and the way it should be, and tell him Al Galdi sent you. Our special guest, sports business insider Daniel Kaplan of The Athletic is coming up next segment to tell us about the Dan Snyder-Bruce Allen feud. But let's get into the latest right now because it's complicated and juicy and comical and otherwise our conversation with Daniel won't make as much sense. So the latest is that Dan shortchanged Bruce. Daniel Kaplan on Saturday reported that Bruce in 2020 had successfully fought Dan's effort to cut Bruce's pay in half. Yes, in half. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Exactly, Danny. Happy Thanksgiving. The Danny having shortchanged Bruce came to light via a federal court filing that was disclosed as part of this ongoing discovery process of Dan on April 15th having filed a motion of discovery 
against Bruce. Why did Dan file a motion of discovery against Bruce? Dan did this for the purposes of going through Bruce's text messages and documents that allegedly were part of the smear campaign against Dan in the summer of 2020. Yes, the smear campaign. You recall the ownership turmoil, right? Dan versus the three former disgruntled minority owners of the Washington football team, Dwight Shar, Robert Rothman, and Fred Smith. The ugliest aspect of the ownership turmoil, Dan versus the three disgruntled minority owners of the Washington football team, who of course are no more because Dan bought them out, was this alleged smear campaign perpetrated on Dan Snyder. Dan, in a lawsuit filed last August 7th, accused an online media company, meaww.com, of accepting payment in exchange for publishing defamatory rumors. This was all in the wild lead-up to the publishing of the Washington Post's first article and the sexual harassment scandal last July 16th. Dan was seeking $10 million in damages in this lawsuit. You'll likely remember what happened. In the days leading up to that first Washington Post article and the sexual harassment scandal, rumblings of a major expose on Washington got going. And it was really over the course of two days, July 15th and July 16th, that the hype for this expose, especially on Twitter, got out of control. And the rumors were crazy. Dan Snyder abuses drugs and alcohol. Dan Snyder bribed some NFL officials, some of whom have made $2 million off Dan. And Dan wasn't the only NFL owner who had paid league officials. Jay Gruden did drugs and participated in sex parties. Washington pimped out cheerleaders to sweet holders. The late convicted sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein was somehow involved in all of this. Implicated as one of the financial benefactors in the alleged smear campaign against Dan Snyder was one of the now former disgruntled minority owners, Dwight Shar. Okay, it was in one of the court documents in Dan's defamation lawsuit against the online media company that we got the first reveal of Dan and Bruce having had problems. AJ Perez of FrontOfficeSports.com on February 22nd broke the news that John A. Moog, the Baltimore-based financial consultant hired by the former minority owners to facilitate the selling of their stakes in the franchise, had exchanged 87 phone calls with Bruce Allen. The two over those calls talked for more than 22 hours, and the two also had exchanged text and email messages that, per Team Danny, proved that the two were, quote, focused on negative publicity directed at Snyder, end quote. This is when we first learned of, hey, wait a second, there's a thing here now between Danny and Brucey. Then came Dan filing the motion of discovery against Bruce on April 15th. So, okay, that's the background. Now to what came out this past Saturday. It turns out that per the federal court filing that was disclosed as part of the ongoing discovery process, Dan, shortly after firing Bruce in December 2019, balked at paying Bruce what Bruce was contractually owed. Read the filing in part, quote, after terminating Mr. Allen's position with the team, Mr. Snyder forced him to initiate legal proceedings to obtain the last of his contractually protected compensation. Specifically, on April 1st, 2020, Mr. Snyder attempted to use the coronavirus pandemic as an opportunity to reduce the amount still owed to Mr. Allen. This forced Mr. Allen to retain legal counsel and initiate a proceeding through the NFL to obtain his compensation, which he did, end quote. While it is suggested in that excerpt that NFL arbitration ruled in Bruce's favor, a lawyer for the Washington football team told The Athletic that the matter, in fact, was settled. But how about this statement? 
Jordan Sieb, partner with Reed Smith, one of Dan Snyder's outside law firms, in an emailed statement to The Athletic, quote, As Mr. Allen knows, there was no ruling by the league on this matter, but rather a confidential settlement was reached. It is unfortunate, but not surprising, that he has chosen to violate the confidentiality of that agreement through his filing, end quote. Listen to how ugly, how contentious things have gotten between the Danny and Brucifer. It means you're close. No, you're not close anymore, Bruce. You and Dan used to be close. You're not close anymore. Also in the disclosed federal court filing was an email from Bruce to John A. Moog, again, the Baltimore-based financial consultant hired by the now former minority owners to facilitate the selling of their stakes in the team. A big part of Dan's anger toward Bruce had to do with Dan's perception, remember, that Bruce was in cahoots with Moog regarding the smear campaign. The email is from August 12th of last year, includes the subject. Remember, this is coming from Bruce to Moog. I guess it was my fault. That was the subject in the email from Bruce to Moog. And included in the email is the following. Again, Bruce Tomog, and you'll hear the mention of Mary Ellen Blair, an estranged former Washington employee who Dan accuses of being a big part of the alleged smear campaign. Quote, the longtime partners of Snyder were all once very close. It's hard to imagine that they are all buddy-buddy at this point, and maybe forever. It seems as if Snyder thinks that this was a coordinated plot based on court filings to get to the financial backing of Blair and perhaps the entire alleged scheme. Have I heard the whispers and rumblings behind the scenes? Yes. Have people been talking on and off the record? Yes. Do I believe that this is a war that is heating up and perhaps ready to explode? Absolutely. End quote. So nothing there that really would implicate Bruce as having been a part of the smear campaign, to whatever extent a smear campaign existed. But of course, this is coming from Team Bruce. Bruce in the filing denied having anything to do with a smear campaign against Dan. We shall see. You know, it is so hard in this entire situation to figure out who to root for. Like, who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? Who's the baby face? Who's the heel? It's Dan versus Bruce. And I don't know. I'm not sure what we're supposed to think about who's right and who's wrong. I'm not really sure I really care about who's right and who's wrong. I am just fascinated by this and incredibly entertained by all of this because it really is something else. Like, take a step back. Dan and Bruce, Bruce and Dan, they were two peas in a pod. We all wondered whether Dan would ever fire Bruce because the notion of Dan parting ways with Bruce just seems so far-fetched. And yet here we are, and not only did Dan end up firing Bruce, the two now are at each other's throats in a manner that I don't think anyone could have ever reasonably anticipated. This has become some kind of feud. Things rarely, if ever, end well with the Danny. Well, for more on the drama, because with our Washington football team, it's never just about football. It's always, at least in part, about the drama. We turn now to our special guest. Very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast right now, a man who has been all over the Dan Snyder, Bruce Allen feud. He is sports business insider Daniel Kaplan of The Athletic. Daniel, it's very nice to talk to you. How are you? I'm great. Well, thanks for having me on. Appreciate you coming on very much. Before we get into the specifics of the feud, as someone who has covered sports business for years, are you ever amazed at the drama that can ensue between millionaires and even billionaires in sports, or not really? No, this, uh, I mean, whether it's uh, a family feuding over the future of a a sports team ownership or um, 
CEOs going after one another. It never, it never, it, no, it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me. Uh, this is particularly vitriolic between Allen and Snyder, but, uh, no, it doesn't surprise me. So you broke the news on Saturday that Bruce Allen in 2020 successfully fought Dan Snyder's effort to cut Bruce's pay in half off firing Bruce in December 2019. This came to light in a federal court filing, but the filing is part of this ongoing discovery process of Dan and April having filed a motion of discovery against Bruce. Is that correct? Yeah, it gets a little complicated. As the listeners may be aware, in July of 2020, there were some fairly scandalous articles that appeared on an Indian website that without evidence claimed Snyder had links to sex trafficking and Jeffrey Epstein, and they pretty quickly uh, took them down. But uh, Snyder is convinced that the, the that his limited partner, his former limited partners, and others were behind these articles. And he's been on a, uh, I don't want to call it a witch hunt, but a hunt uh, to find out who or what was behind them, if, if there is a who or a what. And so he filed a defamation lawsuit in India, and there's an obscure provision in U.S. law called, it's, it's, it's under the federal statute is 1782. And these are known as 1782 motions, and he's filed 12 of them in U.S. federal courts seeking discovery on individuals who may know something about the foreign proceeding in India, the defamation case. And in the, he's been fairly successful in obtaining discovery in a variety of court jurisdictions. And he recently filed one against Bruce Allen in Arizona. And the, the, it was his reply, Allen's reply, protesting the discovery demand in which he disclosed the the existence of this dispute over pay. So I definitely want to get to your take on the larger issue, this idea of the defamation and Danny going after Bruce. But it's specific to the trying to cut Bruce's pay. So Dan's justification for trying to cut by 50% what he owed to Bruce was the COVID-19 pandemic? Yes. Now, as, as we all know that during the COVID, uh, during the teeth of the COVID pandemic in April, uh, May of 2020, many companies cut pay across the board. Uh, uh, I know my own did, did, did as well, although certainly not by 50%. And, uh, and obviously Bruce Allen was under, had a contract. So it was a little different than being an at will employee. So the, the justification that Snyder gave him was the COVID pandemic and Snyder, uh, Allen in his response disclosed he took the matter to NFL arbitration, uh, and he, and he said he got his payback, which, which, uh, suggested that the arbitrator had ruled in his favor, uh, but, uh, Snyder's lawyer gave me an on the record comment in which he said there was no arbitration ruling, there was a settlement, and that Allen had violated confidentiality provisions of that settlement, which suggests that there could be further proceedings on this matter huh. if, uh, if Snyder wants to push that the, the confidential settlement was violated by Allen, uh, I wouldn't put it past Snyder to see, <laughs> to seek some redress here. Yeah, well, and in reading your work, the statement that was given to you, you know, that was not some gentle, subtle, nice statement. That that seemed pretty direct and pretty forceful. Well, let's, uh, and I'll be honest with what happened here. I interpreted Alan's 
Allen's filing that there was an NFL arbitration victory for Allen because that's how, how it seemed to read. Uh, after I ran the story, uh, uh, the, the lawyer for Snyder reached out to me and said there wasn't an arbitration ruling. And I said, but this is what it says. And he's, and that's when the existence of a settlement came, came to light and he emailed me that very forceful statement. Yeah, and, and that was forceful, no doubt. We're talking about the Dan Snyder-Bruce Allen feud with sports business insider Daniel Kaplan of The Athletic. You can follow Daniel on Twitter, at Kaplan Sports Biz, that's B-I-Z. So uh, one more thing on, on the payment stuff. It, you know, it's never been reported what Bruce was paid by Dan, like what Bruce's salary was. Do we have any better of an indication of that, or do we still not know? Well, uh, I don't know. I did reach out to Bruce to see if he wanted to offer further details. I got no response. Uh, the letter that is that Bruce included uh, a letter uh, that he received from the general counsel of the of the Washington football team on April first, twenty twenty, which disclosed the effort to reduce his pay by fifty percent. Um, but it did not disclose what that pay was. And so the listeners, um, so they're not confused. Um, yes, Bruce Allen was fired in December 2019, but his contract extended through January 2021. So that's why Snyder was able to try to cut his pay by 50%. So like you said, this juicy reveal is part of this bigger picture of Dan believing that Bruce is part of this alleged smear campaign against Dan last summer. With this ongoing discovery process, what exactly is the hope from Dan's perspective? Like, I mean, is he trying to find some kind of a smoking gun by which he can legally go after Bruce? Is that the idea with this? And it's not just Bruce. He's after, he's after John Moog, who's the, who was the investment banker for the three limited partners who, uh, turns out is a good friend of Bruce Allen. In fact, what led Snyder to Bruce Allen was discovery, uh, on John Moog in which um, hundreds of emails and phone calls were turned up between John Moog and Bruce Allen. And not that there's anything wrong with that, uh, although Snyder interprets it that way, uh, but that's what led, uh, because Snyder's convinced John Moog is in the mix, middle of it, and there was all these correspondences between Moog and Snyder, excuse me, Moog and Allen. Um, uh, so that's what led that's what led Snyder to Allen. It, it, it gets very, very, you know, in, in the weeds, but it's it's very vitriolic, not just between Allen and Snyder, but between Moog and Snyder as well. Yeah, no doubt. Um, with the Bruce stuff, what would constitute something worthy enough of warranting legal action by Dan against Bruce? I mean, you brought up the potential of Bruce having broken this confidentiality agreement. What else could Dan discover to where he could bring further legal action towards Bruce? Sure. And, and, and so the listeners are aware the 1782 motion against Bruce is not a lawsuit. It's a, it's a, it is a legal, legal proceeding. It's a discovery demand. I mean, I suppose if emails or texts are turned up that showed Bruce Allen was directly involved with spreading lies about Dan Snyder to the Indian website that published the the scandalous stories that that could lead to litigation, but that's yeah, I mean that's what Snyder is hoping for. But Bruce Allen completely in in his filing the other day denied having any knowledge, anything to do with the Indian website 
stories. I, I think probably what one might find is that he maybe he had something to do with the Washington Post sexual harassment story, which is a completely different matter, which is which is not scandalous or defamatory in any way. No. And what's so funny is all of the wild rumors in the lead up to that post article kind of softened the blow of that post article. Not to say that what was in that post article wasn't serious, but, you know, you had people talking about Dan with Jeffrey Epstein and drug and sex parties and things like that. And then you read the post article and it's bad, but it wasn't like that bad. It wasn't crazy bad. So it's always been kind of an irony, this whole thing, that the defamatory rumors may have actually helped Dan in a weird way. In a weird way, but what he really wants, he wants to find out what led to those rumors, right, who, right. who was planning it, why, why were message boards alight, you know, with these rumors before the post story came out. Um, the, the, he, and he's convinced, and the, so the listeners are aware of his, his line of thinking. He, he was in, he had a, he had a disagreement with his three limited partners, and they were trying to sell their, their shares. And his view is that they felt that if they could uh, force him to sell uh, because of scandal, it would make their shares more valuable because you because if you sell the whole of the team versus just a small slice of a team, you get you, the value is, is is more on a proportionate basis. So that that's his that's his theory, uh, and he thinks the three limited partners and John Moog and Bruce Allen and others were. Or in cahoots uh, on this. Yeah, and look, Dan is not a sympathetic figure, but I, I do get where he's coming from, and I don't think he's being that ridiculous in, in surmising what you just outlined. I mean, especially with the Dwight Shark connection with Mary Ellen Blair. You know, if all this stuff that was out there isn't true, that, you know, he wasn't connected to Jeffrey Epstein and there weren't these wild, crazy drug sex parties, etc. I mean, it is wrong that this stuff was out there about him. It would seem that Dan does have a legitimate case here in terms of trying to go after people or this online media company for the defamatory rumors. Is that unreasonable to say that Dan may actually have a legitimate case? Well, he certainly has a legitimate defamation case in India against the uh, India, Indian website. Uh, whether he has a case against John Moog or Bruce Allen, that's, uh, that, that's certainly very very un, uh, un, unclear, yeah. and, it, and he, he's gone. He's gone after others. Uh, he's gone after the the wife of a former GM. He's uh, he, he's he's gone after the advertising companies that that sold ads on on this website. So there's, I think, as I said, these are called 1782 motions. He's filed 12 of them across U.S. federal courts so far. So Bruce Allen is clearly the most high profile of them and the most interesting for your listeners, but he's just one of 12, actually. Final moments with sports business insider Daniel Kaplan of The Athletic. Again, you can follow him on Twitter at Kaplan Sports Biz and Biz is spelled B-I-Z. So as all of this is going on, we still incredibly have heard nothing officially regarding the Beth Wilkinson investigation into the sexual harassment scandal. And in the meantime, of course, Dan has been allowed to buy out the three disgruntled minority investors and now is more powerful than ever before. Do you take that as a sign that whatever comes of the Beth Wilkinson investigation will not be so damaging to where Dan must be removed or not necessarily? No, the, the, the prior, I, I don't, there's, there's no way the league would have allowed Dan to buy back the shares if they thought that there was any chance the Wilkinson report was going to show a smoking gun 
uh, bringing sexual harassment charges directly to his doorstep. Um, my, my guess is there'll be a fine, uh, and perhaps even a suspension. I mean, I have nothing to, to just, just knowing how the NFL operates. Uh, but I, I certainly don't see the Wilkinson report leading to Dan's ouster. Uh, I would think that, you know, by training camps, uh, the report will be out, uh, if not sooner. Is it odd to you that the report isn't already out? I don't know if it's odd. I mean, these things can take a, a, a while. I mean, there's years and years of emails and correspondences uh, to go through and uh, interviews to be done and people to track down. So it's not it's not odd to me, but I certainly think the NFL would want the air cleared on this uh, before the season starts. Yeah, for sure. Final question. Of all of the crazy, complicated situations you've covered in sports business, where does this entire Dan Snyder saga rank for you? Like, is it is this the looniest or have you covered other situations that you say to yourself, you know what, this Dan thing doesn't hold a candle to this other thing? It certainly, it certainly holds, you know, it's certainly up there. Uh, I've, I've covered some some loony, some crazy, I mean, yeah, loony on different, different levels. Uh, uh, but it's, it's, it's certainly, it's certainly up there. Yeah. Well, Daniel, I appreciate your time very much. Continued success and uh, keep up the great work. I've very much enjoyed reading you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Well, we had another loss for the Nationals on Monday night, a 7-3 loss at the Chicago Cubs in game one of a four-game series. Nats fall to 16-21 and on the season, and the Nats still are last in the National League East. Now, um, it's not, you know, panic time with the division standings. The division has been very underwhelming, but the Nats are four games behind the New York Mets, who are first in the division at 19-16. and 16. The Mets on Monday night snapping a three-game losing streak, 3-1 win at the Atlanta Braves in game one of a three-game series. Mets got swept at the Tampa Bay Rays over the weekend. So for the Nats in this game at the Cubs on Monday night, it really was a lot about former Cubs, uh, talking about John Lester and Kyle Schwarber. And whereas Schwarber had a good night, John Lester did not. John Lester got shelled in his return to Wrigley Field. Five runs in five and a third innings on eight hits, which were three homers, a double and four singles. Did issue no walks, that was good. Had four strikeouts and did throw 53 of his 76 pitches for strikes. But Lester got rocked in this game. Gave up a run in the bottom of the first on a leadoff single by Wilson Contreras on a 1-2 pitch, a single by Chris Bryan on an 0-2 pitch, and a first pitch RBI sack fly by Anthony Rizzo. So two instances there of Lester having guys down in pitcher counts and being unable to put away those guys, right? Contreras was down 1-2, leadoff single. Bryant was down 0-2. He had a single. And you're going to notice a theme here, leadoff batters inflicting damage. Lester gave up two runs in the bottom of the second on a leadoff single by Matt Duffy, followed by a full count two-run opposite field homer by Jason Hayward to left field. Lester allowed a run in the bottom of the third on a first pitch, leadoff homer by Wilson Contreras to left field, and Lester allowed a run in the bottom of the sixth on a one-out opposite field solo homer by Javier Baez to right field. John Lester was great for the Chicago Cubs. He got a really nice ovation at Wrigley Field, and he deserved it. The Cubs signed Lester in December 2014 to a six-year, $155 million contract, and he lived up to that contract. You know, so many of these big money deals for pitchers don't work out. The Lester deal with the Cubs did work out. Six regular seasons for Lester with the Cubs, 364 ERA 
over 171 starts. He was masterful in the postseason. John Lester was the MVP of the Cubs' 2016 NLCS win over the Los Angeles Dodgers. His overall postseason track record, by the way, is tremendous. Like, the three best playoff pitchers of this generation to me are Steven Strasburg, Madison Bumgarner, and John Lester. Like, those three guys have really distinguished themselves in postseason play over the last, say, 15 years or so. But John Lester's final two seasons with the Cubs did not go so well. It's been, of course, a weird 2021 for Lester with him first dealing with the parathyroid surgery during spring training and then having to deal with the COVID-19 protocols that kept him out uh, to begin the season. Lester had done a nice job, though, over his first three starts for the Nats this year. And then came what we got on Monday night. And this is the thing with John Lester. He doesn't miss bats. He's not a high strikeout guy. So he puts people on base. You know, his whip now on the season is 141. That's a high whip. That's, you know, walks plus hits divided by innings pitch. Lester puts a lot of guys on base. So the control has got to be pinpoint. Otherwise, he's in trouble. And especially in this game on Monday night with the Cubs just ambushing Lester, jumping on him, you know, some first pitch attacks. Also, like I said, a bunch of leadoff guys getting on base. Uh, it was a rough go of it for John Lester. And he ends up really for the first time this year over these four starts, uh, not giving the Nats much of a chance. Now, you know, you can argue these days you're a Nats pitcher, you give up two runs. You're not giving the team much of a chance with the way the offense has been for so much of the season. But disappointing outing for John Lester. An emotional night, you got to think as well, uh, with the ovation that he got from the Cubs in him going back to Wrigley Field. Uh, the Nets' bullpen was unable to limit the damage too. And this is the thing. Nets' bullpen overall has been good, but it's been leaned on a bunch. And it's not going to be perfect every time. And you know, it hasn't been perfect lately. Like some runs have been given up here by Nats relievers in recent games. Four Nats relievers on Monday night combining to allow two runs, one earned in two and two-thirds innings. Kyle Finnegan in the bottom of the sixth faced two batters, got two outs. Sam Clay in the bottom of the seventh struggled, was charged with an unearned run in facing three batters and recording just one out as he gave up a leadoff single to Nico Horner on a one-two pitch, issued a wild pitch, after which catcher Jan Gomes committed a throwing error and then gave up a one-out pinch RBI single to Eric Sogard. Tanner Rainey then came in, and Rainey looked outstanding, looked great in the bottom of the seventh phase. Two batters recorded two strikeouts of Wilson Contreras and Chris Bryan on nine pitches. Very encouraging to see that from Rainey. But then Paolo Espino had some problems in the bottom of the eighth, gave up a run on a leadoff double by Anthony Rizzo and a two-out RBI single by Jason Hayward. So the Nats do end up allowing seven runs in the game on Monday night, but the Nats end up scoring just three runs in the game. And the Nats did hit two homers in the game, but the Nats' other four hits were mere singles. Nats didn't elevate nearly enough pitches, you know, three walks for the Nats in the game. It ends up being another ho-hum offensive performance for the Nationals. I mean, how about this? The Nats for the game went 0 for 2 with runners in scoring position. And what stands out there isn't the O, it's the 2. The entire game, the Nats had just two at-bats with runners in scoring position. That's terrible, okay? That's way too few to have Nats unable to deliver. A lot of guys ended up having rough nights. Starling Castro, starting third baseman, number five batter, 0 for 4. Castro's in a rut right now. He now is 0 for 18 with two walks over his last four games. Jan Gomes, who's been good this season, number seven batter, starting catcher, 0 for 4, and he had that aforementioned throwing error in the Cubs' one-run seventh inning. Victor Robles had a rough night at the plate, 0 for 3 with a strikeout as a starting center fielder, and yes, number nine batter, as David Martinez continues to bury Robles in that number nine spot. Although Victor did have a nice outfield assist throughout Anthony Rizzo at second base in his attempt to stretch a one-out single into the left center field gap into a double in the bottom of the third, and actually credits Darling Castro for making a nice tag on that play, but Robles offensively on Monday night did not come through. 
And Juan Soto continues to have issues. He did have a hit. He went one for four with a single at a one-out first pitch single in the top of the eighth. But Juan Soto continues to not hit for any power. You know, it's just a bunch of singles and not much more. Just mentioned elevating. Juan Soto is not elevating balls right now with his swing. And for Juan Soto, that's a problem because we know he's so much better than what he's showing. Like, he's had some hits and some walks, but Juan Soto's here to hit homers and doubles and, you know, have a robust slugging percentage well into the 500s. And that's not happening uh, since he came off the 10-day injured list. Uh, Josh Harrison on Monday night had a single, too. One for four with a single and two strikeouts as in that starting second baseman and number six batter. But not enough happening offensively. There were some bright spots, though, and I do want to single three guys out in particular. So Trey Turner did have another good game. Starting shortstop, number one batter, one for three with a solo homer and a walk. Trey with a two-out solo homer in the top of the third to left field on a shot that nearly left Wrigley Field. That ball kept traveling. Uh, Trey also with a one-out five-pitch walk in the top of the eighth. How about this now with Trey Turner? Ten home runs in 37 games. He's tracking to hit 40 homers this season. And we know Trey Turner has power. This isn't new, but that's something else. 10 homers in 37 games on a Nats team that hasn't hit for nearly enough power. Trey Turner has certainly done his job. 10 home runs. He now has a slugging percentage of 584 on the season to go with an excellent on-base percentage of 373. You know, going into games on Monday, Trey Turner was by far the number one position player on the Nationals and wins above replacement for baseball reference. A 1.9 B war for Trey going into games on Monday. More than double that of any other Nats position player. He's having some kind of season. Kyle Schwarber, his rise continued on Monday night. He was the starting left fielder, number four batter. That seems to be his spot now. He's been the cleanup hitter recently here, and he's been delivering. Kyle Schwarber on Monday night, one for three, two-run homer, and a walk. He had that two-run homer to center field in the top of the fourth. Good-looking shot there. Uh, also drew a two-out four-pitch walk in the top of the eighth. So here we are now with Kyle Schwarber, and I've been making mention of this, but Kyle Schwarber now, over his last 11 games, has raised his OPS for the season by 178 points. His OPS for the season has skyrocketed from 572 to 750. You know, Kyle Schwarber essentially has gone from having a really bad, disappointing season to now having a nice, solid season, you know, and maybe it's going to end up being a great season. We'll see. I mean, you know, plenty of time to go. But an OPS at 750, you can work with. And Kyle Schwarber, to me, is a guy who is very capable of having an OPS in the 800s, if not higher. Uh, but to see him kind of bust out here recently, you know, I was always kind of tempered with this because I was like, all right, he's doing better, but let's see him keep it up. Well, he's kept it up. And again, OPS now up by 178 points over his last 11 games. Another homer, and again, a homer to center field on Monday night. And then Josh Bell did have a multi-hit night, got on base three times. He was the number three batter in the lineup, which to me is a little aggressive with the season Josh Bell is having. Uh, I tell you, Davey has given Josh Bell every opportunity to do well this season. You don't see that with someone like Victor Robles, which has bothered me, but Josh Bell has gotten a lot of opportunity here. And uh, you know what? It, it worked out to you know a certain degree anyway on Monday night. Starting first baseman, number three batter, Bell two for three, with two singles in the walk. He had a two-out full-count single in the top of the first, a leadoff single in the Nats, two-run fourth, and a one-out full-count walk in the top of the sixth. However, Josh Bell did fail in another big spot, and this has been a problem for Josh Bell on the season. He comes up in the top of the eighth with one out and runners on first and second and has a first-pitch flyout to the right fielder, Jason Hayward. That's it, you know. Wah-wah. Uh, you had a really good chance there to make something happen 
Uh, you got Trey Turner on second base off a one-out five-pitch walk. You got Juan Soto on first base off a one-out first-pitch single. You know, I'm not against swinging at the first pitch, but it's the kind of thing where if you do it, you better be right, you know? And he won right there, unable to come through his bell in that spot. And uh, the Nationals, again, end up scoring just the three runs on the game. We do have a Steven Strasburg update for you. It sure looks like he's about to be activated. Strasburg has rejoined the Nats in Chicago, scheduled to throw an extended bullpen session of 50 to 55 pitches on Tuesday, and that would seem to be the final test to see if Strasburg is ready to be activated off the 10-day injured list. He's been on that for a while. Nats put him on the 10-day IL all the way back on April 18th, retroactive to April 15th, with right shoulder inflammation. We did see Strasburg make his first and likely lone rehab start on Sunday. Four and a third shutout innings for AAA Rochester and a 2-1 loss for the Red Wings to the Buffalo Bisons in Trenton, New Jersey. And the feeling has been, well, he's not going to pitch in this series at the Cubs, but he should be good to go to pitch for the Nationals next series, which will be a three-game set against the Orioles at Nationals Park this weekend, Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday afternoon. So if Strasburg passes this test on Tuesday, and there's no indication that he shouldn't, then hopefully, finally, he's back pitching for the Nats against the O's this coming weekend. Game two for the Nats at the Cubs, Tuesday night at 740. Patrick Corbin versus Zach Davies. Patrick Corbin back from paternity leave. Zach Davies is not having a good season. Zach Davies, former Orioles prospect, by the way, in a terrible trade that the Orioles made. July 2015, O's dealt Davies to the Milwaukee Brewers for Gerardo Parra. Yes, pre-Baby Shark Para. Para did nothing for the Orioles down the stretch in that 2015 season. Davies has had some good seasons, although he's not having a good season this year. ERA of 560 over eight starts. So this is another starter coming into a game against the Nationals with lackluster numbers. Nats have had a hard time taking advantage of guys like this so far this season. Hopefully that changes come Tuesday night. With Patrick Corbin, we know he's not had a great season overall, but he has been better lately. And he's coming off the best outing of... We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This season, the 5-1 win over the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park last Thursday afternoon. Corbin was terrific in that game. One run in seven innings, nine strikeouts. He's made seven starts on the year. He was terrible over his first two starts, but Corbin over his last five starts has an ERA of three, 23 strikeouts versus seven walks. So he's been trending in the right direction. He certainly has not been perfect over these last five starts, 
but he's been so much better. Remember, Corbin was really bad last season, was bad, really bad over the first two starts of his 2021 season, but he's settled down. He's getting back to the Corbin we saw in 2019 and hopefully keeps that up with this outing Tuesday night at Wrigley Field. All right, guys, look, no one's perfect. Even the best baseball players strike out with the bases loaded. The best golfers sometimes three-putt with the tournament on the line. So if you feel like you come up short in the bedroom sometimes, it's perfectly okay. But if it's bothering you, there are options. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi and complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without leaving home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now to get $15 off your first month. Look, there's a straightforward way to take care of your ED. GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi. Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at AlGaldi. You can email me the AlGaldi podcast at yahoo.com, including if you would like to become a sponsor of the AlGaldi podcast, hit me up by email. Let the power of the pod work for you. On Wednesday's show, full reaction to and analysis of whatever happens for the Wizards in their 7-8 game at the Boston Celtics on Tuesday night. I'll have plenty for you on the Washington football team, including a special guest regarding one of the new members of the team. And we'll have game two for the Nationals at the Chicago Cubs and game one for the Orioles against the Tampa Bay Rays to get into as well. Have a great rest of your Tuesday. I'll talk to you on Wednesday. The showstopper.